Good morning. This Advent season that we're celebrating for the next four weeks is a season of hope. It's looking forward to celebrating the first coming of Jesus when he came as a baby. And it's also a looking forward to his second coming. You see, we need to have hope. Man cannot live without hope. As one writer put it, man can live about 40 days without food, about three days without water, about eight minutes without air, but only for one second without hope. Eric Bentley writes, if one truly has lost hope, one would not be on hand to say so. (laughs) You see, hope keeps us going. It keeps us moving ahead. I'm fascinated by stories of POWs in World War II and Vietnam. As they tell their stories and, and you hear how those who had hope were able to endure almost anything. But those who lost hope quickly died. You see, biblical hope is something very real, very sure. It's not just wishful thinking. It's not, gee, I hope it doesn't rain anymore today. (laughs) You see, biblical hope is this assurance, this certainty of what's coming, of what's ahead. But it's very important that you put your hope in the right thing. It's really important you put your hope in something that is sure. Most people put their hope in the wrong thing. Last week we saw in the center passage of chapter 4 of 2 Corinthians how Paul described the normal Christian life. And by normal I mean it's what we all experience. That it's a life of suffering, of weakness, of suffering, and of a process of dying to ourselves. That is the normal Christian life. That's what we all experience. But this truth, this reality, could easily lead us to lose hope. We could give up. If our hope's in the wrong thing. (laughs) If our hope is in somehow this life getting better, that things working out, that things would get easier for me, that things would go well, that I would get God's blessings here on earth. You see, Paul says that isn't going to happen. But if we put our hope in that, as some false theologies teach us, that, hey, if you have enough faith, life will get better for you. If we put our hope in that, then we will be incredibly disappointed. In fact, you might say that God, in fact, does want us to lose hope in the wrong thing. (laughs) So that we can put our hope in the right thing. We need to lose hope in this world and all that it offers so that we can find hope in something that will truly last and help us through these times of difficulty and suffering that we all face. As we've said, man cannot live without hope. So how do we live with a hope that will see us through the difficulties of life and bring us to heaven with joy and peace and fulfillment Well, in a word, Paul tells us, if you want to have that kind of hope that will see you through, it means exercising, the word is, faith. 
means exercising faith, living by faith. So now in our passage today, Paul shows us what faith is. And then he shows us what we need to put our hope or our faith in, what we can be confident of that will bring us true, powerful, persevering hope in the midst of a painful world. Heavenly Father, we, we admit that we desperately need hope. This world is hard. It's too much for us. But we want to put our faith in the right things. We, we want to put faith and hope in, in the things that you promise. So may you today anchor our souls in true hope. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So what is faith? Really, what, what is faith? Well, Paul says this in verse 13, having the same spirit of faith, according to what is written, I believed, therefore I spoke. We also believe, therefore we also speak. I mean, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 13. Having the same spirit of faith, according to what it's written, I believe, therefore I spoke. He's referring to something in the Old Testament. And he says, you want to know what faith is? Look at this passage in the Old Testament where the psalmist in Psalm 116 says, I believed, I had faith, therefore I declared, I I, I spoke. If you really want to know what faith is, he says, look at Psalm 116. It reveals what true faith is, the kind of faith that can lead us to true faith. Hope. So turn with me, if you would, to Psalm 116, if you have your Bibles. Psalm 116, and we're going to spend some time there, as Paul directs us there. You see, the psalmist in Psalm 116 has been going through a terrible time. Verse 3, he describes it this way. The cords of death encompassed me, and the terrors of Sheol came upon me. I found distress and sorrow. He says, my life was so tough. I I was going through such a hard time that it was as though I was being tied down by death itself so that I could not move. What I experienced, he said, were absolute terrors, distress, and sorrow. He's describing incredible pain, horrible suffering, But faith in the psalm comes when he realized three things. And I want to highlight those for you. Two of them come in these verses that Paul quotes, quotes, refers us to. He only quoted the first part, but he wants us to remember the rest of it in verses 10 and 11 of Psalm 116, where the psalmist says, I believed, I had faith, when I said, I am greatly afflicted. Does that sound like faith to you? You know what? It is. Sometimes we think of faith as something where, you know, if I just believe hard enough, if I just believe hard enough, I'll get this new car. Or if I, if I just believe things will go well or my kids will turn out all right, if I just believe hard enough, it'll happen. That's not faith. That's presumption. That's a denial of reality. Real faith begins when we admit the reality of suffering. Real faith begins where we say, I'm greatly afflicted. 
Or in modern terminology, my life sucks right now. (laughs) It's bad. It's a mess. That's the beginning of real faith. Faith is not a denial of reality. Faith is facing reality squarely in the face and admitting the suffering of life. It begins there. So you want to know what faith is? It's admitting, yeah, life is hard. I am greatly afflicted, the psalmist says. And then secondly, notice what he says in verse 11. I said in my alarm, all men are liars. All men are liars. (laughs) How is that faith? Well, see, faith recognizes that no one in my life and no thing in my life can satisfy the desires of my heart. No one is really trustworthy enough for me to put my trust in. All men are liars. All will let me down. Even my spouse, even my best friends, even my pastor, whoever it might be, all men are liars. All men fail me. And real faith admits that squarely and looks that in the eye and says, this is the reality of life. No one can be enough for me. In fact, not even myself can be enough for me. This past Monday, the elders had a wonderful time of prayer with our elder emeritus, George Peltier, who was fighting terminal cancer. And we asked George, we said, what would you like us to pray for? He said this, pray that God would protect me from me, (laughs) from thinking that I can handle this on my own. All men are liars, including myself. That's really what George is saying. What an incredible statement of faith because he's recognizing that nothing is enough for him other than God himself. So that's where faith is partly hopelessness. It's losing hope in other people or in myself or in other things, money, etc., so we can put our hope in the right things. So Psalm 116, the psalmist has recognized these things and come to a deeper faith because he has declared, I am greatly afflicted. What a mess my life is. And no one's really, really enough for me. Then he can come to the third great truth he put his faith in that is really reflected in the rest of the psalm, but I just want to read verse 4 through 7 of Psalm 116, where the psalmist says, Then I called upon the name of the Lord. O Lord, I beseech you, save my life. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Yes, our God is compassionate. The Lord preserves the simple. I was brought low and he saved me. Return to your rest, O my soul, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. So the three steps to real faith are, man, my life's a mess, secondly, and no one's enough for me in this world. And thirdly, God is all I need. You see, faith turns to God having let go of the things of the world and other gods, and it clings to Him. It 
grabs onto him and says, Soul, find rest in him. He is enough for you. You are my one and only life. Faith trusts in God's character of grace, of righteousness, of compassion, and knows he's enough. What a wonderful picture of real faith. And Paul refers there because if we want to have faith, if we want to have hope in life, we need to have a faith that says, yeah, life's a mess. And no one is enough for me. Nothing is enough for me in this world. But God is enough. And I will cling to him in the midst of a difficult life. I will, as he says at the end of the psalm, I will call on his name. We're actually 12 and 13. What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits toward me? I shall lift up the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. That is faith. On our recent trip to Turkey and Greece, we spent time in Istanbul, which was formerly called Constantinople. And these are the words of John Chrysostom, who was a wonderful preacher and the bishop of Constantinople in the 4th century, commenting on this very verse. He says, Paul reminds us of a psalm which abounds in heavenly wisdom and is especially fitted to encourage us in dangers. The psalmist uttered these words when he was in great danger, from which there was no possibility of escape except in the power of God. In similar circumstances, Paul says that we who have the same spirit will be comforted likewise. Thus he shows there's a great harmony between Old and New Testaments. It's the same spirit at work in both. The men of old were in danger, just as we are. And like them, we must find the solution through faith and hope. This week I had the opportunity to have coffee with one of our former elders, Brian Schlater, who's fighting a terrible cancer. And he said this to me. My cancer has caused the background noise to fade away. Think about that for a minute. The suffering he's gone through, facing it squarely, has caused all the other stuff that we tend to focus on and rely on in life to fade away so that all that's left is his relationship with God. Suffering does that when we, by faith, admit it's there, admit nothing else can satisfy us, and we come to a place of saying, you're my all in all. The background, background noise fades away. So if that's faith, it's faith, if faith is admitting reality, realizing all men are liars, <laughs> can't trust them, but God is enough for me, how does that lead us to have hope, real hope, in a broken, suffering world? Well, Paul tells us in the rest of this passage, he gives us three promises of God that we can cling to or stakes that we can pound into the ground to tie ourselves to when the storms of adversity come and threaten to just knock us for a loop. We can tie ourselves to these three promises, these, three, these three stakes in the ground. The first one is this, verse 14. It's the promise that heaven really is real. Heaven is real. Verse 14, knowing, Paul writes, that he who, was, who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus 
and will present us with you. Paul says, I'm confident, I have hope, because I know that just as the Father raised Jesus, He will raise us with you, Corinthians. A number of you have read the book I have probably. It's called Heaven is for Real. It's a story of a little four-year-old, Colton Burpo. And this little boy had emergency surgery. He woke from this surgery having amazing stories about meeting family, some he'd never even heard of. And he gave an accurate description of them. He described meeting Jesus, other saints, Marvelous little book, little story. Does that inspire your faith in heaven? Well, it's an encouragement, isn't it? Paul says there will be relationship in heaven. He, he says right here, he says, God will raise us up with you and with Jesus. So we'll all be together. We'll be a place where we can share life together, share communion together, fellowship together. Heaven is real. And Paul wants to encourage us to put that stake in the ground and remember it's true. We can count on it. But what is heaven like? I think it's so fabulous that the Bible can only give us hints because it's so far beyond our experience, we wouldn't even understand it. It says things like it'll be a place of no tears, no struggle, no pain. It'll be a place of a new heavens and new earth. But notice it's new. It's kind of like this heavens and earth, but yet different and new. And there'll be streets of gold in the new Jerusalem, but will it really be like that? Or will it, you know, I think the Bible just gives us hints to spark our imagination. So, so we try to grasp something that's so far beyond our comprehension, we just don't get it. In, in a sense, it's like trying to describe a five-star resort to a native of Papua New Guinea who's spent all their lives in a mud hut. How do you really describe the food, the accommodations, etc.? Well, you have to give hints that they can connect with, but it won't even come close because they have nothing in their experience that really connects with that. And that's the way it is for us in heaven. Heaven will be so far greater. We only have hints of what it will be like In his book, Heaven, Randy Alcorn says, Heaven is like some things on earth. It's described as a garden sometimes, or as a city, as a kingdom, but it will be far more than any of those that we've experienced. So how can we know that heaven's real? How can we put our hope that though we suffer here, Heaven is real and therefore I can put my hope that there will be a day that all my longings will be satisfied there. How do I know it's real for me? As Paul says, by faith. By faith. But it's faith based on facts. What's the fact? He says, just as Jesus was raised from the dead, so shall the Father raise us up. You see, the historical fact of Jesus being raised up is our absolute proof and our confidence that this hope is real. And we can put our faith in that so that we can live by hope that this also will happen to us. 
If Jesus was raised, then we too will be raised. That should be our confidence. And that should be our hope. So hope in this world comes from faith that heaven is real. We have it to look forward to. The things we really long for in this world will be satisfied not here ultimately. We only get a taste of it here. But ultimately we'll be satisfied in heaven. But we also get hope from by faith the next stake we are to drive in the ground is that God is using us here. God is using us here in the suffering. And that gives us confidence to keep going on. It gives us hope to not give up. What is, how does he say that? Verse 15, he says this, For all things are for your sakes, so that, the things, so that the grace which is spreading to more and more people may cause the giving of thanks to abound to the glory of God. Paul says, all things, the suffering we're going through especially, the difficulties, the dying to self that he's just been talking about in the previous passage. He said all these things are for your sakes so that the grace might spread to more and more people, so that more and more people will give thanks and that God will get all the glory. What a beautiful picture of how God uses us in life as we go through suffering. As we saw last week, we're clay pots. And as God taps on us with his hammer and little cracks appear, his light shines through and it impacts the world around us as we go through suffering. But notice, we don't always see that, do we? That's why it's by faith. We put our hope in the fact that God's using us even if we don't see it. We put our hope in the fact that this suffering I'm going through, whatever it is, is not wasted But again, we don't always see how God is using us in other people's lives. I had an old friend come up to me just a week and a half ago and say, boy, you know, we went to the same high school together. And she said, boy, when you came home from college and, you know, we had talks and and you got involved in the ministry and all that, you really, really encouraged me and helped me get where I am today. Well, I hardly remember her. I have no idea what I did or said. But see, that happens all the time. God uses our suffering and there's an aroma that leaks out. That's how it's supposed to be. We're not supposed to see how God is using us. He does. That's the way he puts it in chapter 2 of 2 Corinthians. We studied it a few weeks ago. Thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of Him in every place. To some, an aroma from life to life. To others, an aroma from death to death. That somehow in our suffering, there's a fragrance, an aroma that goes forth that's invisible. And that's why we don't see it. We don't see the impact we're having on others. And yet God is using it to impact those around us. So we can trust Him. This promise that he's doing things through us that we can't even see. That gives us hope in the midst of the suffering. Our suffering is not wasted. And then the third stake we are to put in the ground and pound in and tie ourselves to is the promise that we can have hope in the midst of a suffering life because God is transforming me. In the suffering, he is transforming me. He is changing me. Verse 16. Therefore, we do not lose heart. We don't give up. We don't lose hope. 
But though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. We can live with hope even though we suffer. Why? Because God promises that though our outer man is falling apart, especially as we get older, yet our inner man is being transformed. I I appreciate so much the way David Roper describes our outer man decaying. Says this, time is the enemy. We invest in vitamin supplements, serums, tightening concentrates, firming creams, cellulite removers, a plethora of pills and potions in an effort to stave off the effects of free radical damage and try to stay alive, or at least look alive, <laughs> as long as possible. We battle every age spot, blemish and bulge, but nothing works very well or for very long. The hours fill our brow with lines and wrinkles, Shakespeare lamented. The Greek god Cronus, which means time, devoured his children, it was said, a sad reminder that time destroys all things. Time eventually catches up with us. We look our age, and it's not a pretty sight to see. (laughs) Jeremy Taylor, writing in the 17th century, put his finger on the issue. First, age takes those parts that serve for ornamentation. (laughs) Thus, every day calls for a reparation of that portion which death fed on all night. (laughs) Each morning, we have to repair the damage that was done the night before. As an old friend of mine says, a little powder, a little paint makes a girl what she ain't. (laughs) That's the reality. Time's our enemy. These outer bodies fall apart. But here's this incredible statement of Paul's that gives us hope in the midst of the suffering of life is that while our outer body's wasting away, our inner man, the inner person is being transformed into Christ-likeness through the suffering. We are becoming more and more like Jesus inwardly. But we don't always see it, do we? That's why we believe this by faith. I don't always see how I'm changing, that I'm that different. And yet, he says it's true, and therefore, by faith, we believe it's to be true in this promise that he is transforming me in the inner man, so I'm becoming more and more like Jesus. I I have a great privilege as a pastor to be involved with people in their last days fairly frequently. And it is one of the greatest privileges I have to watch as their body fades away how so many, their faith in Jesus gets stronger and stronger and there's such a beauty there that stands out even as the body gives out. David Roper again says this, I have a friend, a Catholic priest, who served as Mother Teresa's translator when she was in the United States to address the United Nations. I was in his study one day and spied a picture of the two of them standing together on the streets of New York. I marveled again at her ancient, wrinkled, leathered, lined face, utterly unadorned. Wisdom and character had drawn their lines. Gazing at those marks of courage and kindness, I thought, is there anyone more homely or more beautiful 
You see, God's transforming the inner man. And Paul, in verse 17, expands on this as he says, For momentary light affliction is producing in us, and that's a good translation, and I think a better translation, is producing in us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. What an amazing statement that, that these light afflictions can't be compared to the incredible glory that God is producing in us. Now, what are these light afflictions Paul's talking about? Look sometime later in the book at chapter 11, verse 23 and following, as Paul says, oh, by the way, what are my afflictions? Momentary light afflictions? Beaten with rods, stoned, shipwrecked, carrying the burdens of all the churches. He goes on and on of all the pain and rejection and difficulty he went through in his life. And he says, by the way, that's momentary light affliction compared to the incredible glory that God is producing in us. You see, faith allows us to believe the promise of God and really believe that my suffering, though it seems so heavy right now, really is like a pile of feathers compared to all the weight of the Sawtooth Mountains. In fact, you can't compare those two really, right? And he says that's the way it is. It's incomparable. The light afflictions we're going through aren't even comparable, can't be compared to the incredible weight of the glory that God is producing in us. It doesn't mean that when we die that we just become soulless and these souls are floating around or whatever. No, it means that all that we are, we we get redeemed bodies. These bodies that are decaying now will get transformed and we'll get new immortal bodies. And those will be full of the glory of God. C.S. Lewis in his little essay, The Weight of Glory, puts it this way. He says, we need to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship, or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. There are no ordinary people. You've never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilization, these are mortal, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. There's a weight of glory that's being produced in every follower of Jesus Christ through the sufferings we go through that is incredibly glorious. What is this weight of glory? It's God's delight in us. It's Christ's likeness. It's our new glorious bodies. It's, it's all that God has for us and is making us. And we believe it by faith. You see, these are the three stakes we pound in the ground and tie ourselves to in the midst of the storms of adversity. That heaven is real. That God is using me. There's an aroma coming forth even in the suffering and that God is transforming me, making me more like him. My suffering is not wasted. And in fact, suffering increases our hope over time as the background noise fades away. But how do we live by hope in these things? How do we put our hope firmly in him? Well, he tells us, I think, in this last verse, 
verse 18. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. He says, you really want to have hope in the midst of a world that's full of suffering and difficulty. How do we do that? We look, focus on the things that are unseen. Now, how in the world do we do that? The seen things are easy because we have five senses and we have our eyes and we feel and touch and those things shout at us that this is real, this is real. But how do we look at what's more real? Well, we do it using two things, I believe. Knowledge and imagination. In other words, the knowledge of the Scriptures. We remind ourselves of the truths of these hopes and what the Scriptures have to say. We immerse ourselves in the knowledge, the truth of the Scriptures, and then we use it to spark our imagination. Imagination is not in something we make up, but God's given us the gift of imagination that we might live in this unseen world, that we might understand the kingdom of God that surrounds us all the time that is invisible to us. We need to know what the Bible says and imagine the truth. Randy Alcorn in his book Heaven says this, We cannot anticipate or desire what we cannot imagine. That's why, I believe, God's given us glimpses of heaven in the Bible to fire up our imagination and kindle a desire for heaven in our hearts. Rather than ignore our imagination, I believe we should fuel it with Scripture, allowing it to step through the doors that Scripture opens. In other words, see Scripture and imagine it. We don't live within a world without pain, but we can imagine it and long for it. We don't see Jesus face to face, but we can imagine it and long for his kind eyes and his loving approval of us. Folks, we we can't live without hope, but the sooner we lose hope in the things of this world, the better it is. (laughs) But as we learn to live by faith, trusting in God, driving these stakes, tying ourselves to them, we can put our hope in the fact And I say fact, that heaven is real. The fact that God is using me even in the suffering and the fact that God is transforming me in the suffering. And as we use our imagination to keep our focus on what God says, not on what the world offers, we'll have true hope that will see us through our darkest days. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for these incredible promises. May we learn to live by faith, not by sight, and live with a hope that sees us through our greatest suffering. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Can we stand together as I close us? I want to read one more time verse 17, a wonderful reminder to us of what we need to put our hope in in the midst of suffering. For momentary light affliction is producing in us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. So as you go, as you celebrate this Christmas season in the next few weeks, let it be a season where your hope grows because your imagination is firmly grasping the promises of God. Go with God. God bless.